There are some really big names in the world of ufology, and Jim Penniston is one of them because of his involvement in the Rundlesham Incident, also known as England's Roswell. For the two or three of you in the audience who don't know, in late December of 1980, there was an actual close encounter with a craft or artifact of unknown origin that landed in the forest outside of RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk, England, which was witnessed by many highly credible professionals in law enforcement and the military, including base commander, Lieutenant Charles Holt, the local police, the radar operators at RAF Brentwater and nearby Watersham Airfield. Jim Penniston was one of the actual men who encountered the artifact in the forest that night. And the rest of his story is detailed in his book, The Rundlesham Enigma Part 1 Timeline. This chronicles his experience in the military, the specific encounter with this artifact of unknown origin, and how this experience changed his life forever. Jim and I, Eric Fisk from the Fedora Chronicles, not only talk about what really happened that night, but we also discuss some other sightings and encounters and the people he believes is telling the truth about what happened to them. And finally, the latest disclosures from the United States Pentagon. Once again, here's Jim Penniston, retired U.S. Air Force Sergeant and author of The Rundlesham Enigma, Part 1, Timeline. And this is a Metaphysical Connection edition of the Fedora Chronicles radio show. Thanks for listening. Um, I cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast. Like I had said before I um, pressed the record button, I have two of your books, two of the books that you've contributed to, Encounter at Rendlesham Forest, which is the one that I'm actually reading out loud to my sons, and your new latest book, The Rundlesham Enigma. Can, can you just start with the beginning and tell us a little bit about your background and, and, uh, and your career in the military leading up to that night in December 1980? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I entered the Air Force in 1973, and uh, uh, say I had an assignment to March Air Force Base, I, I, you know, for security police. Uh, I didn't actually work flight there. I got uh, I volunteered for special duty at Offutt Air Force Base, uh, which is with the Sacolite Guard, and that's where I got my top secret clearance as an airman first, and. Uh, uh, our job there was to, you know, we worked at the command post and we, uh, you know, were bodyguards and for 36 generals, among other people. And uh, so that was the place where I was exposed, like, to the high end of the Air Force. I mean, whether I was doing security for, uh, you know, briefings that were being done in research and development or stuff like that. I mean, you can't help but listen. You're standing right at the door, you know? And um, those are the kind of things that, that gave me a background of what was coming for the next 50 years uh, as far as prototypes and stuff like that. Um, then I uh, uh, got tired of, 
I, I guess the all the protocols that off it. And I volunteered for assignment to England, and I went to uh, RAF Alkenbury. It's over by Huntington, I don't know. It's in Cambridgeshire, England. And I did two years there in flight uh, as a, you know, working in the WSAs and weapon storage areas and flight line security. I had went back, I got another assignment back to the States, and uh, that was at uh, Melstrom Air Force Base in Montana, and I was part of a flight security control. I was a flight security controller for uh, ICBMs, uh, security for them. Um, I did that for I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years, and uh, I wanted to go back to England, so I volunteered, got uh, my assignment to RF Bentwaters and. Spring of uh, 1980, arrived there, I think, in June or July. And uh, so it's about six months before Rendlesham. Is that, a, is that enough detail? Oh, no, that's, no that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of detail. Were you just drawn back to England? Was there just, you just wanted to go because um, you felt a calling? Or did you just like it in, in that area? Uh, I, I like the England because, uh, first of all, uh, I'm a history buff. I like history and that. Yep. So what I would do is, uh, on my first tour over there at Alcombery, I took classes, you know, in, uh, they were like, uh, uh, very sliced history, like, uh, UK, the England history, 1045 through 1076. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it'd be something that, it'd be that, and what I would do then is I would, on uh, my uh, vacation time and, and off time, I would travel to some of the historic sites, and I really enjoyed that. So uh, that was one of the things I, I liked about England. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to study it in the classroom, uh, you know, English history, and then mm-hmm. let's say you're standing there at Hadrian's Wall, you know, and you're, that, that's a little bit, you know, brings it home for you, you know? Yes. But one of the things that I really wanted to just nail home for the listeners is that uh, you're no slouch. You have a security clearance. You had a uh, a high-level role at Rendlesham. Um, you had a lot of responsibilities there yeah, at the I, Air Force I, Base. I did. I did. But I tell you what, I after the incident, uh, I had even... Uh, a more strategic role. Uh, after the incident, I uh, uh, I was pretty much volunteered to work as the non-commissioned officer in charge of uh, security police plans and programs. Okay. What does that? Yeah. What does that mean? Okay. That means I wrote, developed uh, all the contingency pro uh, uh, security plans. Uh, all the uh, operational security plans, the uh, uh, base security regulations. Uh, there was nothing on that base that I didn't uh, uh, know about as far as the security or, you know, the comm centers or the uh, C3 facilities yeah. off base. And so, and the other thing is that that job also put me uh, working directly for the wing commander at times 
in the battle cab at the wing command post and uh, also writing reports for Colonel Hall on a monthly basis. Uh, the, you know, so it was a it was a pretty interesting assignment. I was there from 1980 to 1984. Okay, and then um, probably one of the most probably one of the second most famous ufo incidents and by the way do you like the term ufo do you what which which do you prefer uh, aerial phenomenon i never i never used the word ufo even from the initial start um that was one of the things i had to brainstorm on the way back uh, in to get ready to write the reports uh there was no way it was a career ender if you ever used the word ufo in the air force probably still is um so I, I came up with the term craft and un, unknown origin. And, so, and that, that worked for me. <laughs> so in, in late December, the week between Christmas and New Year's, you had taken part in something that people refer to as um, England's Roswell. But I, th I think it's, it's more important than that. I think that it's it's I think it's more significant um, for a whole host of reasons um, because that there were so many collaborating witnesses for uh, for the two or three people who don't know what happened. But tell us tell us what happened. What was your experience? Uh, I was uh, it was twenty sixth of December. Uh, just started around midnight. Um, I was the security flight sergeant in charge of security for Woodbridge, uh, RAF Woodbridge, England. Uh, just to give you some quick background on that, uh, RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge are twin bases. They're uh, separated by three miles of forest, which is Rendlesham Forest. And the main operating base is Bentwaters. So that's where our control centers are and all, all that kind of stuff. But that night I was uh, working as flight sergeant for uh, Woodbridge, and we had two uh, restricted areas over there, and on them were parked uh, two squadrons of uh, A-10 aircraft. Around midnight, I got a uh, telephone call to uh, respond to the east gate uh, of a situation out there. I arrived at the east gate. I contacted the law enforcement patrolman, the senior guy, uh, Bud Steffens, Staff Sergeant Bud Steffens. I was asked him what was going on. And he was like speechless. He pointed to the, the forest, and I could see, you know, multiple color lights in the forest, which is about 300 yards away by open field, it was at the time. And I could see uh, multiple colored lights coming out of the forest, and I could see a dome of white light over the forest. So I says, uh, my first thought was it had to be a, a fire or something like that, or maybe a crash. And I said uh, to Bud, I says, did you uh, uh, see a crash? And he goes, no. He says, I didn't crash. He says, that landed. And, uh, you know, I tried to press him on a few, a few times. He still wouldn't change his mind on it. And uh, you could tell he was shook. Uh, I uh, went to the East Gate, which was just a gate shack, you know, with a direct line to law enforcement. 
Uh, once I arrived there, it was a security situation, so law enforcement uh, desk passed me right through to central security control. And uh, when when I did that, you know, there's like five people in line when, when I call them, and they all start doing their thing. And uh, I'm talking to the flight sergeant at Bentwaters, and I was telling them, uh, and I says, oh, I said, it could be something burning out there. I said, I think it could be a crashed, you know, aircraft. And then uh, Sergeant Coffey, the senior controller, comes online and says, oh, I, I just contacted London Radar, Eastern Radar, and Bentwaters Radar, and they lost contact with a bogey, unidentified aircraft uh, about 10, 15 minutes ago over Woodbridge Base. And so by him saying that, that constituted an emergency situation for an aircraft crash. And, um, of course, the flight lieutenant, Lieutenant Moran, uh, got a hold of the base commander, uh, Colonel Conrad, and we got permission to deploy off base to set up uh, uh, recovery. And uh, what, which means that... Uh, the security police, or the security response option I was in, uh, doing at the time, my checklist, was to go out and set up an entry control point, ECP, uh, for the rest of the first responders that would, you know, be able to, to to focal at a focal point for them, and that would be like, you know, the fire department, uh, mortuary affairs, stuff like that. Uh, at that point in time, I had probably been to twenty some aircraft crashes, and there's never survivors. I mean, there's just usually nothing left of them. Uh, not to get too gruesome about it, so um, it wasn't a recovery like for probably life. It was recovery for resources, like you know, secure the scene, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so uh, I got myself, I got a law enforcement airman, Airman Burroughs, uh, and a security uh, airman, uh, Airman Kambanzai. And uh, we were going to drive off base to, uh, you know, set up that entry control point and wait for the, you know, the first responders. And uh, inside our, my, my, my Jeep, my CJ7 or 5 Jeep I had, uh, we always carried a crash kit. That tells you how many uh, crashes we get with aircraft crashes. We had a crash kit right in the vehicle. And so, I, you know, I broke that open, uh, had the plotting board for the, setting up the inter-control point. Uh, I pulled out the camera, um, and that's usually to uh, take, you know, media pictures around, you know, the crash site uh, for history. Right. Uh, and then um, we went as far as we could in as far as driving uh, because uh, the the way the, the forestry service worked back then, it probably still does, is they sort of harvest uh, their trees like it was a crop for them. Like every 10, 15 years, they cut them down after they grew. Yeah, yeah, sure. They do that here in New Hampshire a, a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, and yeah. yeah and they re, then they regrow them, and another 15 years later, they cut them down again. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That's that's a that's a big thing down here, at least in southern New Hampshire. One of the things I also want to inject into my, my listeners um, who are not familiar with your story, 
you know what a crash looks like. You, yes. you know your stuff. You know your business. So when people say, like when you have critics or skeptics who say it was one thing and not the other, you know what you're talking about because you've yeah, been yeah. there. Yeah, they're talking out of school. They don't know. Okay. <laughs> they don't know what yeah. Okay. Uh, I just go back to off at Air Force Base. Like I said, I was, you know, privy to research and development for fifty years in the future. I mean, come on. I mean, all those craft there uh, uh, were uh, were pretty advanced. I seen, you know, uh, you know, uh, some of them were like, you know, stealth and you know things like that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and uh, this is also at the height of the Cold War, which a lot of people, um, like my son's generation, they just simply don't understand that we were at a constant state of alert because of the Cold War, and we thought that at any minute the Russians were going to do something sneaky, or and the Russians thought we were going to do something sneaky. So you had no idea what you were coming across. Other than the no, fact I, that you... I knew that the uh, crash wasn't civilian because it didn't have a transponder on it. Okay. They, they, they you know, military aircraft don't have it on there. I mean, the last thing they want to do is be seen, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, so we, we per, was pretty sure it was a military aircraft and um, it wasn't one of ours. We knew that though. <clears throat> anyway, uh, uh, the little background about the bases in the Cold War, uh, you know, we had to, with, you know, our dependents and, and the active duty on those swim bases, we had over 10,000 people there. And uh, uh, we had six squadrons of A-10s. Uh, their job during uh, the, the first part of a future war was to stop 5,000 Warsaw Pact nation tanks from coming across the Rhine and they, I'm sure they could have done that mm-hmm. uh, quite easily and um, we also had two C3 facilities there which is at RAF uh, communication which is at RAF Bromley and uh, at March from Heath and uh, at the time it was probably it was top secret uh, the Marshall Heath was a was a, a common uh, nodal point for uh, our listening posts and stuff that we had placed in Europe, and uh, so it was pretty important. The base also had four forward operating locations in the event of uh, you know day one of the war or maybe a couple of days prior to the first day of the war. Uh, it was in, located in Germany, throughout Germany, uh, like uh, Alpine and, uh, oh boy, I better not start naming right? I don't know if I can. Uh, Holm Air Base. Uh, uh, we, anyway, we had four forward operating locations. I can't remember. I, you know, I, I, I'm surprised I, I can't remember that because I wrote security plans for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, it's been pretty tense. Now, on top of all that, we had a different type of terrorism. Yes. We had the RA, we had Bader Meinhof, we had Black September, we had the Red Brigade, we had all these terrorist groups uh, that were um, 
uh, in and around, you know, European theater. Uh, England uh, mainly was RA. Uh, the other thing we had as a threat is that we were only about 20 miles from coastal ports like Lowestoft and uh, that, and that's where we'd have Russian trawlers and stuff like that come in. And so the crews were uh, in and around the area. So yeah, the, the time was, uh, was uh, tense and uh, we trained a lot to uh, repel any type of, uh, you know, uh, offensive or anything like that or spying. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we would do with that crash kit camera routinely is take pictures of people taking pictures of us uh, that are located off base. What they were doing that for, only you can guess. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, I can, I can. I can. My dad used to tell me stories when he was in the Army. He was ASA, Army Security mm -hmm. Agency. And that, um, he said it was like a game. You know, you're, you're spying on the spies a lot. Yes. Yeah. That is, that, that is really a good way to put it, too. Yep. It's, it, it is a high-level game that you just play. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the things that usually stop them from taking photos. When you start taking photos, then they stop. Of course. They're, they're, yeah, they're, just, they're gone. Of course, because now, <laughs> now you have evidence that they were spying or they may have been doing something nefarious so that you, you, you were driving towards what you thought was the crash site and you were pulling out all of your equipment, you had your camera out, and and then what? What happened when you got close enough to see what was really going on. Yeah, well, as, as it got to the, you know, the, the edge of the forest, uh, you know, um, it, it just, it just wasn't making sense. I mean, uh, 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 aircraft, like, you know, they have titanium and stuff like that. They have certain colors and that when they burn in that, and uh, there's always the smell of fuel and, you can hear the crackling, of the, you know, usually of the fire and that, and none of that was present. So I was, uh, I was in a little bit, I was a little dismayed by it because it just didn't, wasn't adding up. And uh, as uh, I approached the forest, uh, well, I had set up the entry control point. I'd done that already with uh, Airman Kabanzak, and that was about 50 yards, 100 yards behind me. Um, and that's how CSC, Central Security Control, knew exactly where we're at because I plotted in the, uh, on the plotting board the, the, the grid coordinates where we were at. Uh, it's, it wasn't too scientific then. It was like, you know, they had like alphabet across the top and numbers on the side of the map. And you say, well, alpha 17 or something like that, you know, so that's about how accurate they were. Um, anyway, as uh, I approached the perimeter defense, it was just myself and the uh, law enforcement, Airman uh, Burroughs. And uh, I could, uh, besides the, uh, the observational stuff I was seeing, I was feeling, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, like electricity and stuff, like uh, static electricity on my face and hair, clothing things like that, which was completely out of the ordinary. I didn't know what, what that was caused by. Um, I had someone ask me one time, he said, was it adrenaline? 
I said, well, no, I've been to a lot of aircraft crashes. It wasn't adrenaline. <laughs> it just gets routine after a while. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they just, they, um, yeah, people don't know. What they, they don't know because they haven't experienced stuff. Mm -hmm. that, you know. uh, anyway, as, uh, so I was, I'm getting ready to go in the forest. Uh, I, I started taking pictures then. Um, and uh, they should have all turned out, you know, but uh, later on we found out they did not. Uh, so I, I, I went through my first roll and second roll film and uh, just entered the forest. I had uh, Burroughs, who was to my right rear, 25 feet away. And I had, like I said, Kabanzak, who's at the injury control point about it. A, you know, that was about 75 yards away. Oh. Also, at that time, uh, uh, Sergeant Chandler, the flight sergeant from Bentwaters, had come already over to the East Gate and had took my job over. Uh, and he was uh, observing everything from the East Gate. I want to also interject here that when you refer to... Um Burroughs, uh, I believe you're talking about John Burroughs, who is the one of the, your your fellow co-authors of the of the first book that you participated. Yes, yeah, he's a co-author. Remember that book's only half right. Okay, <laughs> okay. Let's, That's no. why I had to write the Enigma book. It was so messed up. Okay, yeah, all right. I hate to say that. You know, Nick, Nick, and I, you know, we talked about, it and he says you need to write another book. He right. Says, you know. Oh, so it was Nick yeah. who actually encouraged you to write this the yeah. second book. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the thing yeah. is, is that, so the group of you showed up and you're walking towards the source of light, I guess. Yeah. It, you know, and, uh, like I said, there's some physical stuff. I shot all the film. Um, as I got into the woods, uh, there's berms of earth, you know, where the trees had been planted. And so I didn't have direct visual contact at a point but uh, i was experiencing other things like first of all it was completely silent that that was that was crazy i mean uh, there should have been sound uh all stuff that was going against the aircraft crash i was i was checking off that you know what it, it there was just stuff that was void of being an aircraft crash as i um continued I could feel, you know, other physical effects, and the, the most uh, astonishing, astonishing one to me was uh, was my movements were becoming labored as I walked toward the berm, and uh, uh, it would feel like uh, walking waist deep during uh, in a pool of water, that type of resistance, and uh, that there uh, was pretty intense and then it started to dissipate uh, as I come up by over the burn uh, uh, the white light that was brightly emulating the whole forest there and believe me that forest is dark okay it's it's canopy it makes it almost pitch black except for this bright light and as it started dissipating it uh, I could see a, a craft uh, starting to form within, you know, my line of sight, and uh, it uh, finally became a triangular craft. And then, the, of course, this white light had dissipated all the way down to where it was only underneath this craft. Uh, 
then there was like uh, colored globular colored lights running through the fabric of the craft real fast. And they started to slow down and eventually they disappeared. And then all was in front of me was this black, shiny craft. It was at that point I terminated the uh, I, I terminated the helping hand with CSC. I did not get an acknowledgement uh, from CSC. Uh, I I wasn't sure, you know, if they were received me or not. But you know, I figured Cabanzac or or um, or the flight sergeant uh, from Bentwaters could relay it. Uh, but I still continued to uh, uh, talk in the radio. And I terminated the uh, security response option for uh, a downed aircraft, and I implemented a helping hand situation. And a helping hand is a security situation uh, that could be a threat to the priority A, B, or C resources on the base. Uh, and uh, we had deployed off base, unfortunately, uh, unarmed. Uh, because there's no need for weapons for aircraft crash. Uh, but uh, uh, we were unarmed at that point in time. And uh, so implementing the helping hand, uh, I started to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, to get as much information as I could written down, uh, mainly... Uh, because I was concerned about if I was going to survive. I, because I had Burles, who's like 25 yards, 25 feet away to the right, who's just standing there motionless. And I got same coming from Cabanzac, so I don't know if they're scared to death. I don't, I don't know. They just weren't moving. Uh, I liked, uh, in retrospect, looking at it, um, the immediate area around this craft is 15 feet. Uh, I, I call it sphere of influence. Uh, this, uh, the, what was going on uh, inside that sphere of influence was different than appeared to be on the outside of it. And uh, so I took my notebook out and I was going to get as much information as I could for higher headquarters, you know, so they can make command decisions on, you know, whatever this was. Uh, I, uh, well, first thing that uh, uh, was was I was curious about is uh, it was fixed above the uh, floor of the uh, forest, but I didn't know how. It's about three feet high off, off the forest floor, and, and so I'm looking underneath it, and there's still that white light coming out, and then I can see three indentions in the ground for where this white light is. Uh, and so I tried to move it, the craft. And, and, you know, if it was a car out there, an automobile, it'd still move, you know, a half inch or an inch or something if you shoved on it. Uh, but this was completely solid. The craft didn't move at all. And uh, so I paced off the craft. It was about nine feet uh, wide, triangular, like I said. Uh, uh, the back dorsal area of the uh, craft uh probably extended up uh, about a foot over my head. I'm about six foot two, so it would have been about six and a half, seven feet high. Uh, I was looking for uh, to record things that all the, 
that you need to have uh, in an aircraft to make it fly, uh, like, uh, you know, Arions and flaps and uh, crew compartment, uh, intakes, exhaust. It was void of all those things. Uh, I... Uh, the other thing is the fabric of the craft itself, like I said, it was black and shiny, and it, had, it was smooth. Uh, there was no um, uh, rivets or stuff like that on it or, or seams. It was just completely like it was molded. Uh, as I walked around, uh, the, the 360, you know, taking as much documentation as I could on it, um, I... Uh, uh, seen that there was writing of some sort on one side of it, which actually sort of made me feel relieved. Um, uh, it would have, you know, like, a, you know, United States Air Force or, uh, uh, you know, a sickle on it or something. Something, anything. <laughs> Some, any, anything, yeah. Uh, and uh, as, I, as I looked at it, it they weren't, uh, you know, writing as, you know, like, we'd have on our aircraft it was uh it was uh glyphs it was symbols and there was uh, six of them and there was five on the bottom and you know as i stretched my arms out they measured about three four feet in length in all in a row above them was a more predominant one which was a triangle a triangle with a, a circle around it and three other little circles on it this, uh, now, these are the symbols that are on the cover of your book, the Rendlesham Enigma. Yes, they are. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, that's a pretty good cover, actually. That it really is. is. I mean, as a graphic designer, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply impressed. The guy that made that is, uh, no, I wish I could remember his name. It's terrible. He's not going to get credit for it. Um, he anyway, he's uh, from Naples, Italy, and we subcontracted him to do that. And uh, I'll, I'll try and find his name and put it on the show notes for this episode. Oh, yeah, I'm, oh, doggone it! Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, that that really sucks. I, I hate not giving credit. <laughs> I, I I bet you, if we skim through the Kindle, we could probably find it real quick. Right. Right. Um, so exactly. you so you saw these symbols on the craft, right? And uh, you know, so you know, I had touched the craft. You know, touch when touching the craft, it was warm to touch. Uh, the air temperature was about thirty-two degrees, so it was freezing or just about freezing. And uh, so the craft is warm, very smooth. But when I got to the, you know the glyphs and I was running my hand over it, uh, the they went and they were very rough, like mm -hmm. like sand like sandpaper. Uh, so so going from smooth to a, like a sandpaper finish. So I I use the term etched because that's what the closest thing I can describe it with. Uh, and I thought that that was even more odd. Everything was odd. I mean everything was everything was like crazy. Um, so I continued to go ahead and. Look, you know, finish walking the 360 around the craft, but I uh, was so curious about those glyphs. It was the only thing that uh, was really standing out on the whole craft was the glyphs. So I went back around, and uh, I was going to, you know, 
besides recording them, I was going to uh, examine them further. Uh, I had gotten to the glycogen, and the one that really brought got my attention was this larger one. Why is that larger one above these other ones, you know, uh, uh, the triangle one? And so I, I just reached out and I touched it. And when I did that, there was a brilliant white light came out. I mean, I could see nothing but white light. Uh, and I'm using this term because I'm going to disprove light later on here. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and when I was touching it, uh, first of all, I was shocked. And, and then all I could see is ones and zeros in, in this white light. I you know, and I, I gained my senses again uh, after a few seconds or whatever, and I lifted my hand off of it, and it stopped. And uh, I had my night vision. Now, there's no way if I had that kind of bright light that I could have immediate night vision. That would normally take 30 minutes to 40 minutes later. Uh, but I still, so that's why I say it wasn't light. I'm using the term, it appeared to be light, but it wasn't. Um, but after that ha happened, I didn't touch the craft after that again. I, I was pretty, I didn't want to cause anything else to happen. So as I walked away from it, the craft started having more, it started generating movement. I mean, had the colors starting to come back into the fabric of the craft and the white light underneath is starting to get, more intense so i got away from him about 20 feet got down on the ground and um because uh, I, I thought it activated something i thought it was going to explode or something i wasn't sure um and uh, the craft lifted lifted up and went back through the trees now these trees are planted about five feet across six feet across uh, throughout the forest mm -hmm. And this craft, I, like I said before, measured nine feet in width. And it maneuvered back through the trees for about 20 feet and then stopped momentarily and then started rising uh, to the canopy of the forest, uh, made a slight right turn, and was gone in the blink of an eye. Immediately when that happened, uh, I could now I can hear the forest uh, you know, the background noises in the forest. Um, the airman that was running Burroughs, he was, he was right next to me and he was, um, he was panicking and, uh, he, he says, I, I see it again. And he took off in the air force. We have a, a team concept. You don't leave your team member. Okay? Right, That's the right. Rule number one, basic, 101 stuff okay he he took off and so the maintain the uh you know the integrity of the team i, I went after him besides i was worried he'd get hurt out there and um and i know he couldn't see nothing because the forest is so thick and dark there was nothing to see um uh, anyway we went maybe 50 yards we uh jumped over uh barbed fence and then another fence and we're in a farmer's field i'm chasing them across the farmer's field and uh, i fell down like i don't know two or three times there was still f half frozen water in the uh field i got soaked uh, i'm not sure how many times i fell down i fell down a few times <laughs> and 
I chased them all the way up past uh, you know the farmhouses into Cable Green uh, area, which is another part of Rendlesham, and uh, another forest, and uh, to the road. He finally stops, uh, and I catch up with him. I said, "My God!" I said, "What are you? What are you running after?" Uh, and he says, "I he said, well, I seen this object," and I said, "Yeah." And he says, over there. And I said, over where? And he points back over to, uh, in the opposite direction, to the, uh, uh, to the coastline. And I'm looking, I said, I don't see no lights. And he says, right, right there. So I looked down his arm. Uh, and I said, he said, there's a little light on the, uh, on the uh, you know, edge, on the edge of the, uh, uh, forest there, not forest, but the uh, horizon. And uh, I says, "What that light there?" And he goes, "Yeah." I says, "That's that's the lighthouse." And he goes, "Oh, it's the lighthouse." He didn't get that out of his mouth. And I looked over the Cape Green area, and there was that craft again over the forest. And I'm getting ready to go ahead and you know. Uh, actually uh, go go toward it, pursue it with him. And it slowly started to move out across, you know, toward the, toward the uh, coastline. And slow, I mean, maybe a couple hundred miles an hour. You know, it was pretty, it was pretty slow, two, three hundred miles an hour. And uh, that was the last time we've seen it. That was the last time you saw it, but there were other nights. There were... If I understand this correctly, there are two other nights. Like, no, there was, there was what happened. If you read the enigma, you'll find out what really happened. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the, I'll, I'll address the, uh, the, the, the following morning. Uh, well, anyway, there was nothing on the second day. day. Uh, that was an investigation day that Colonel Conrad ordered. Uh, to be done with Sergeant Neville's and stuff like that uh, uh, for the first night landing and takeoff area. Uh, the third night, uh, the second, all right, the second day that Monero Neville's was out, according to him and, Colonel, and according to Colonel Conrad, uh, actually went from that whole day into the, you know, into the following day. And so that, that maybe were some of the confusion of days that the second day came in, I'm not sure. But the third night was just lights in the sky. I mean, they were uh, one, both, I had multiple accounts according to the, other, the witnesses, uh, you know, like they're doing a grid type search and that, but there were, you know, those were the lights in the sky stuff like UFO stuff. And, um, uh, Monroe Neville's gives a really detailed accounting of um, what happened, you know, out there. Uh, it matches Colonel Halt's uh, maybe 90%, 95%. Of course, there's some, you know, uh, different things that are observed. Uh, one of the big things is, uh, uh, well, I'll let you read the Enigma book anyway about what Monroe Neville says. He wrote a whole chapter on that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we do include uh, 
Halt's testimony, but Halt didn't know about a lot of things that were happening. Uh, he didn't know that Monroe Nevels was sent out the the following morning, you know, after the first night, and that was by Colonel Conrad's orders, and that uh, Sergeant Nevels was, uh, you know, investigating the actual landing site. So, uh, along with Lieutenant England. So, there's a few things like that that uh, he didn't know about. There was peripheral stuff, you know. So, there's also a lot of collaborating evidence, from what I understand. There are other... Now, were, were there other witnesses? Were there... Um, were there um, signals on the, on the radar screen? I mean, there's... Of course. There's a lot of yeah, things. That, there's a lot of things that back up your claim. Well, it's not a claim. It's what happened. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, I mean, the th the thing that drives me crazy in, in in doing research for this in reading, so many so many people are trying to discredit this story, but then they ignore a lot of the other stuff. Well, it's, you know what? It's forty years later, and they're still trying. They right, can't. Right. <laughs> they can't and they won't be yeah. able to. Yeah. It's impossible for them to ever debunk right. out of this. Now, what, what, uh, well, as far as witnesses, oh, I mean, I, like, you know, I get back to Central Security Control that morning and turn my weapon in, and I meet Sergeant, uh, 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 the flight sergeant uh, uh, from Bentwaters. And, uh, you know, I says, man, you wouldn't believe what, what happened out there. He says, I've seen it all. He's seen it all from, you know, um, uh, the East Gate. Uh, so, you know, there was another 15 guys working there. They seen it. I mean, they had guys uh, working at Bentwaters. They actually Bentwaters. There's different uh, vantage points. We had teams that seen a land. I never seen a land. Uh, we also had, uh, like I went in to do the 1569 at Central Security Control, which is a, uh, besides a blotter entry, which is a short entry, into what, you know, chronologically what happens. Uh, the, a 1569 is an incident complaint report, which is a handwritten or typed, eventually typed uh, two or three pages uh, in detail what happened. And I was going to, I seen Sergeant Coffee on it, and I says, I, you know, I had my notes on that, and I'm all ready to do the 1569. And uh, Sergeant Coffee hands me the 1569 completed. And oh. I, I I'm looking at it, and it's a page. Yeah, so I'm like, what? He said, I said, how do you do this? And he goes, well, we heard everything you said on the radio. Oh, that's all. Well, that's, wow. Oh. I says, I couldn't, I couldn't receive, I couldn't receive them. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, who, who heard? Uh, well, it was on the radio. So, uh, uh, anyway, the 1569, I looked it over, it was correct. It was very correct. Times were all correct. Um. Uh, I, I'm sure I was gibbering a lot of talk on the radio because I was out there alone and, and it was, it was a desperate situation. So, uh, uh, it was detailed and I said, geez, thanks, Sergeant Coffee. And I thank him to this day, by the way, yeah, uh, for, 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 for doing that. And then after that, uh, I, uh, Got, they said that the shift commander wanted to meet me in his office, and I did. And I seen Burroughs out there. I grabbed him. I said, you come in and keep your mouth shut. I'll do all talking. And 
Well, he's an airman, you know, what can you say? You don't know what he's doing. And uh, so I got in there, I reported for both of us, and I explained uh, a sanitized version to uh, to Captain Verano because uh, uh, I was worried about my career at that point. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Captain Verano says, well, he says, uh, do you have to worry about it from this point in time? He said, we're going to go ahead and take a look at it and investigate it. And I said, you're going to report it? And he says, well, to who? He says, <laughs> exactly. I mean, who? He says, it's uh, Blue Book ended in 69. He says, who do we report it to? I said, oh, okay. So I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to worry about it. The captain's going to take care of this at this point in time. And he told us just to, you know, go home and take it easy and, you know, relax and don't worry about it. And, uh, you know, so I was going to give Burroughs a ride home. Uh, uh, he lived not far from me in Ipswich. And, um, uh, you know, on the way, you know, I dropped off the film at the photo lab. And he was adamant about going back out there. I said, oh, we don't want to go back. He said, yeah, we should see it in the daylight. You know, he had a good point there. Right, and, right, right. Oh, I said, okay, 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 yeah, we'll do that. And um, because we, you know, we were pretty, uh, you know, there, it was a, we were pretty uh, awake at that point in time. And uh, we get there and uh, we go out to the area. And then I hear Burl's hollering at me. And uh, he was out that far away. And he says, come over here. And I went over there and. It was the landing site. I mean, and the indentions were in the ground, and uh, he seemed amazed that there was indentions in the ground for some reason. Okay, I couldn't figure that out because he was there with me. You know what I mean? And uh, then uh, uh, we left, and uh, then I went back home, and and uh, I still wanted. Uh, I got. A, I had a feeling that there might be a cover up with this. So, oh, of course. I mean, why, yeah. why why wouldn't you think that? So, you know, the landlord was interior decorator, so I went down to his place. I said, what can I have to, you know, to, to record, you know, impressions of the ground? And he gave me plaster Paris, got all set up, mixed, put it in bags, put it in my backpack, and went back out there. I set the, the um, uh, plaster Paris down. And I waited. Uh, at that time, I smoked. I think I had three or four cigarettes for it to dry to the point I could pick them up and put them in the, my uh, backpack. And then on the way in, I run into Major Drury, the uh, deputy uh, squadron commander, and Captain Verano again, and uh, Mass Sergeant Gullis, day flight chief. and. Drury asked me, he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I just wanted to see it again in the daylight. And he said, he says, we're handling this. He says, go, go home. And I said, okay. And uh, that's uh, how it started. And uh, then uh, uh, the Sunday night, uh, uh, I get a call from the orderly room, Sergeant Hudson. And he says, you, you got an appointment with OSI in the morning, Air Force Special Investigations. And he says, don't you want to know what it's about? And I said, what it's about? He said, I don't know. And I said, I know what it's about. And uh, so he had the appointment set up. Uh, and uh, so if I get a hold of Burroughs. I said, we're going to have to go in early. I got to go in the OSI. And uh, Burroughs says, yeah, I got some running around to do anyway before work. And I said, I meet you at 
the you know the dining place there at Bentwaters. Uh, you know when I'm done, and uh, I went down to OSI. I wrote out a four-page report on legal pad, uh, yellow you know the yellow legal pads. I sure do. And yeah, and uh, I, I gave it to them, and uh, they came back about 15, 20 minutes later, and they had a typed version. It was only a quarter of a page. And it was very generic. Uh, it was uh, so you know a, a mechanical craft was observed. Uh, fifty yards as close as I got to, or fifty meters. It says I don't even use meters. Uh, it had British uh, spelling in it for some reason, like the word "color" was spelled the British way. Right. With an extra yeah, vowels. Very, yeah, it was odd. And I said, what am I supposed to do? This is, you know, this is not what happened. <laughs> he says, oh, he says, this is an official investigation right now. And if you're asked about it, this is what you're going to tell people. Oh, no. I says, what? And he goes, yeah. He says, and you do that, it goes away. Uh, and I had an appointment at the command center with, uh, you know, uh, Colonel Hall, Colonel Conrad and uh, uh uh, Colonel Williams, the wing commander, uh, right afterwards, and I says, okay, uh, okay, I got it. And I went and picked up Burroughs, says, come on with me, we're going to go up to the uh, base commander's office, and we went in there, uh, we sat at the conference table, Halt, or, uh, Halt had uh, uh, Burroughs that went in and had me and another were separated like t by 10 feet, and he says, oh, he says, uh, write out your statements. So I'm trying to remember everything I was told to write. And, uh, you know, we drew uh, our diagrams and uh, Burroughs did his. And uh, then we, 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 we talked to Colonel Hall about it. Uh, John, he uh, talked about his, the triangular craft, too, and... Uh, what he's seen out there and it matched what I seen. And uh, so I, you know, uh, I, then I was, then I got asked questions by Colonel Halt and I did the rest talking. Uh, then we went in and we reported to the wing commander and the base commander about what had happened. And I, I gave him the same sanitized version that was uh, somewhere in between what I told uh uh, the captain and, and the uh, statement I was supposed to tell uh, uh, from OSI. And uh, that is the reason I'm the only one, the only person, uh, when the witness statements came out, the rest of them are all signed and dated and that. And I, know, I never signed one. The one I signed was the one on the, uh, you know, the legal pad. And uh, so the one that they put out on the internet is the one that the OSI gave me. <laughs> so it's yeah, not yeah. even right. It's, yeah, well, I didn't hand that to them either. That's, I mean, the one that's out on the internet is exactly the one that was the, what the OSI showed me. So I don't know how, what's going on there. Something is not right. It's a cover-up. It's, well, it's, yeah, well, we we knew the cover-up. They pretty much said that. And one of the things that fell into it is because the third night, when they had the lights in the sky stuff, it was like, oh, this is a gift from heaven. Because 
this is going to be part of the cover-up. They'll concentrate on the, you know, they'll they'll concentrate, uh, you know, on the third night. The we'll sort of meld the first night in and and and, and floss it over, and that's the end of it. And uh, then the cover story, of course, it's in the Reynolds and Enigma book. It tells how the cover story got put out, who put it out, uh, who's responsible. Right. <laughs> you can't get any more detail than that. Yeah. In, in, let me go back to the Reynolds and Enigma book. It's 702 pages long. Yep. Okay. Of the 702 pages, 300 pages are endnotes written by Gary Osborne mainly, and he did a lot of research. And this backs up everything is said in, in the, the chapters. They're all backed up. Not, not just one-fold, two-fold, three-fold. Sometimes seven levels deep the uh, backup is, um, the information. Uh, 85% of the Reynolds Enigma book has never been released to the public, the stuff that's in there. So that tells you a lot about the Encounter book. Okay. So for, for, for our listeners... Jim was, and and this is a little synchronicity or coincidence or whatever. Right when Jim was talking about um, the cover up, and um, and and how um, how he told his story, and the official version differed from his his version of what he handed in, and um, we lost internet. And it was just like, I'm going to see this jokingly. It's as if they don't want Jim to share his story on my podcast. <laughs> so now we're doing this over the phone. Yeah. Next thing, the cell tower will be down, huh? That's, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so so you, turn in, you turn in your official story. Um, you... Pretty much, you turn in all of your paperwork. Now, I think that one of the most interesting aspects to all of this is either all the other vast collaborating evidence that other people have and other people have um, contributed to the story. There's, it's undeniable that something happened. It's, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it's a Air Force investigation of a craft of unknown origin. Okay, that's what happened. That's what happened on December twenty-sixth. Okay, and we're not. Here's the. And here's the the amazing thing about you and your part of the story. You, you don't speculate what it is. You just say it's unknown origin. You're not right. I I never used the word UFO. First of all, I never had a feeling or any kind of impression that it was ever. Uh, anything ET or anything like that. Uh, I knew it wasn't in our, you know, the Jane's book of aircraft. I mean, I knew that it wasn't something we had. And we, by the way, we have the most advanced air force in the world then and now. Uh-huh. Uh, no, it's nothing we had, but, uh, to say, you know, it didn't come on an allocator. I mean, it didn't say, you know, made in wherever. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it was unknown. Now, uh, let's talk about the side effect, or I don't know if it's the side effect, but something extraordinary happened to you. Yeah. Um, so, well, besides uh, that night, Nancy. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, uh, I tried to get, uh, you know, the sleep in that, uh, you know, uh, later that day. Uh, I mean, I struggled with it. I just couldn't, I just couldn't. Like, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a lot, it was a lot of turmoil. It was, uh, well, needless to say, it was uh, traumatic. Um uh, and so that later that following night, uh, you know, I'm trying to get to sleep, uh, exhausted, uh, maybe 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. I just, uh, you know, I lay down and all I could see was to, when I closed my eyes, is ones and zeros. Oh my God, I said, I'm losing my mind here. I said, no, this is, this is a hell of a predicament for me to be in because I was thinking I got to go into the base hospital because uh, you know the trauma of this. But what, what do I say? What do I say when I go into the clinic up there at Bentwaters and say, "Okay, um, I'm seeing ones and zeros. I had contact with a craft unknown origin the day before. It wasn't going to go well, you know, Eric. It, <laughs> I'd be, uh, I'd probably lose my clearance. I'd probably be on the no guns list. I'd probably be." start separation, uh, you know, from the Air Force. Uh, it'd be a career ender. So I was pretty panicky about it. So I get up and, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to try to deal with it myself. Uh, I couldn't sleep anyway, so I made a pot of coffee. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table, all described in the Reynolds Enigma book, by the way, in detail. And um, I... Uh, Started looking, you know, got my notebook uh, off the table and started looking at it. And I was looking at, you know, my notes. And that, you know, I said, well, I think I can write those ones and zeros down. And uh, so I uh, grabbed a pen and, of course, the paper I had was my notebook. And I just flipped to the back and, you know, in a mind's eye kind of thing, I'm seeing these ones and zeros. So I just, you know, I shut my eyes and... And I'm going to open them back up, and I can see them this clear, like one zero one 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 zero zero one zero zero zero. I can see that. And I just started writing them down. And here's the thing. The thing was, when I started to do that, when when I, after I wrote the first line or two down, I felt better. And uh, so I just continued to do it. It's as, it's, uh, it's, it's as if, the, like, if you, if you don't, put it down on paper, it made you feel anxious or it made you feel sick to your stomach or or you just felt like this euphoria when you put it down? I felt euphoria of putting it down. I felt really good. <laughs> and I wasn't feeling good prior to, do, to that. I mean, I was just, too, I was just uh, traumatized. And I knew I couldn't go into the base hospital without, you know, ending my career. Uh, so I said, well, if it feels good, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I, I wrote out like 16 pages of them. And I got to a certain point where I just couldn't write anymore. I couldn't see them anymore either. And I felt great. Uh, matter of fact, I was tired even after the half a pot of coffee. Um, I was ready to go to sleep and I did. I went to sleep. I slept for like 10 hours and I get back up and I feel fine. So I feel that I dodged a bullet. I didn't have to go to the hospital. I didn't have to try to explain this to anybody. Uh, 
And so, uh, you know, the, in the I looked at you know I looked at the ones and zeros and it was like insanity. You know, I I lost my mind or something here. You know, and uh, but the only person who knows it is me, which I was going to keep it that way. <laughs> it was uh, pretty. I was pretty traumatized, and uh, so uh, it goes that way uh, for thirty years. Okay, um, uh, about the code, never to see the light of day. And I tell you what, it wouldn't have seen the light of day at all if it wasn't for Linda Moulton Howe and John Burroughs. Uh, we were doing a film shoot down in Phoenix back in 2010, in October, October 2nd to be exact. And, uh, and you know, that's when they had film. They, now it's all digitalized, but uh, they, they were going to change the film I'm sitting you know for the interview and John asked me about uh, a time so I'm looking through the notebook and I go back too far and I flipped open and of course all the ones and zeros there and they go what's that and I'm thinking whoa all right 30 years later I might as well tell them what happened okay and um, also got to keep in mind this is <coughs> he's your buddy he was there the day of the incident as well Right. So it, you, were, a, you, were so yeah. you were so terrified of what people would think. You even kept it from him. Well, I kept it from people. Well, John and I only worked that time together. We weren't friends. <laughs> we're just, we just okay. worked sure. know, that time. You know, it's not like we're close or anything like that. It's just that, uh, yeah, I never told anybody. I never told anybody in my family. I never told nobody. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I figured, okay, I might as well tell him, you know, I had, I had some trauma afterwards. And Linda Moulton Hall says, you know what that is? I said, yeah, it's ones and zeros. <laughs> she goes, no, that's binary code. And when she said that, I, I had written a book, uh, a contributor of a book with her. Uh, I can't remember the name of it back in 95 or 96. And in there, um, we transcribed uh, some of my hypnosis session from 94, and it was in the book, and it says, it mentions that I can see binary code. And so I made the, at that time, I said, oh, binary code, ones and zeros. Okay, I understand what it is now. And uh, uh, they were, uh, they wanted, uh, oh, the producer wanted to test it, uh, Linda wanted to test it, everybody wanted to try to decipher it or and I said no <laughs> I'm not going to do that <laughs> anyway I, I said I'd go and think about it eventually when I flew back to Chicago and uh, I mean I was getting calls from Linda like two or three phone calls a day she was like adamant to, uh, to have copies of it uh, in the meantime I get a call from a producer uh, from Prometheus Pictures that was out there uh, and she uh, uh, says, you know, uh, we'd like to, you know, see if it says it. And I said, I don't think it's going to say anything. I said, I was having a really bad time, you know. And uh, she says, well, she says, um, scan five copies, uh, you know, sign, you know, five to the five pages of it, and we'll take a look at it. I'll have an expert. I said, okay, okay. I said, between me and her. 
And uh, that was Kim Sharon. She was the producer for Prometheus at the time. It's the Ancient Aliens uh, show. And um, a couple days later, I get a call from Kim, and she says, well, you know, bring it up on the computer and all this. She says, you ain't got to believe this, Jim, but this a, that code says something. And I says, there's no way. And I, I can't tell you exactly. I said to her because you'll we, never be able to put it on. Oh, oh no, we have the explicit tag. You can say whatever it is that you want. I said, no fucking way. Said, no, <laughs> none. There's no way that means anything. And then she read it to me. You know, when she read it, I went, you know what? I've thought this before. I've actually had those impressions of this before. And from the, from the time of the incident. So I says, wow. So, that was five pages. And so Linda, uh, on her multiple calls that day, says, Are, you know, have you thought more about you know, showing us? And I said, yeah, so I'll send you five uh, pages. Oh, great. She was, like, really excited. And she said, yeah, I'll have someone, uh, a professor in Australia look at it, and I have another professor out in North Carolina look at it, and I'm going to have it. I said, I don't care. Just, just go ahead and take a look at it. And uh, about a few more days later, I get a call from her, and she is, uh, like, giddy over it. She says, there's a message in here. And I goes, oh, really? I said, tell me what the message is. And it was exactly what the uh, person that transcribed it from Ancient Aliens, uh, the, the person they got, the CISC, uh, it was exactly what he said. And I went, oh, and I says, okay. And she says, well, you're not very excited. And I said, oh, no. I says, you're the your confirmation. And I says, uh, Prometheus has already deciphered it. And she was upset, let me tell you. It was like like the reporter that missed the scoop or something, you know. <laughs> she was not happy. And uh, so uh, that's how the code came about coming out. It's all in, like I said, the Reynolds Living Enigma. Uh, more importantly, uh, in, in that, uh, um, that's how the code came about. I'll tell you right now, if it wasn't for Burroughs, it wasn't for Howell, that code still wouldn't be out, okay? That is amazing, though. That is, I mean, we have them to thank as well as you. Well, well I don't know if I want to thank anybody for it. It seems like a lot of misery for me, but, uh, I mean, it, I mean, it was this, uh, you know, the reception was just, uh, I don't know, they must, they, here's the, here's one thing, they, people look at Bentwaters like another UFO case, it's not, okay, first of all, I'm a skeptic, I don't believe in that stuff, okay, but, you know, that was my thoughts going into the, uh, in the forest that night, and leaving there, I had a different viewpoint of, like, oh, all right, there's stuff here I can't explain, and, you know, it's pretty pretty wild. Uh, and I'm still like that, so I'm a facts guy, and I, if you don't have the facts to back it up, I don't want to hear about it. i uh, tell you the truth, it wasn't for the, 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 the fact that I, uh, you know, I was part of this investigation initially, I'd probably, uh, you know, if I was somebody, uh, somebody else, I'd ask you a lot of questions about it, I would. Uh, it's, uh, but like you said, the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, you know, besides the physical evidence, the, you know, uh, 
the, the stuff that else is in the Remnants Enigma, the uh, radiation, the reason the craft is warm, by the way, was uh, because of beta ra ra radiation. That was what uh, Sergeant Neville's uh, detected. It was only at the landing site right underneath where the craft was. Uh, it was 100 times uh, normal. So it was, that's why it was warm. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, outside that, where that actual craft landed, there was no radiation. So, you know, I asked Monroe to explain that. He's like, I can't. <laughs> so there's stuff he can't ex explain either, you know. So what, what exactly, now I know the answer to this, but for the listeners, like what, what was the message? What? Okay. It, uh, uh, it has a, you know, it's, it's a brief message. It had coordinates. Uh, there was, um, uh, seven of them. Actually, there's only six once repeated twice. So, um, um, the coordinates is a, uh, is an area off of, uh, uh, southwest off of Ireland uh, in the Atlantic Ocean and uh, one that uh, uh, ancient aliens put the term high Brazil on there um, the other coordinates is uh, near Sedona, Arizona another one is uh, near Belize uh, one is in Peru one is in uh, Greece one is in Egypt one is, is in uh, uh, China. And uh, they all said, with the exception maybe of, uh, it's to be determined, uh, maybe of Sedona, all set by uh, structures that are uh, pyramids or pyramid-shaped objects. I know. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, because one of the things that we have talked about many times on this podcast are the pyramids that rival the ones in Egypt. Well, and the uh, the ones, uh, according to, uh, I go by what the experts tell me. Uh, Dr. Chow, who's a researcher down in South America, he says that the ones in South America are older than the yep. ones in Egypt. I don't know. Uh, he says he's got information on that. Uh, who knows? Um, I think what's really important is in the Reynoldsville Enigma, uh, uh, the book is about the Reynoldsville Forest incident, the aftermath and all that. But the, uh, uh, the epilogue, which is like 50-some pages long, that's written by Gary Osborne. And what it is is a transitional chapter from the Reynolds and Ford's incident to the implementa implications of the binary code. And, uh, and so Gary's writing book two, which will be his research, uh, his theories, and his discoveries. And uh, uh, that's being written at the moment right now. And uh, the thing is, uh, what Gary discovered in there uh, was uh, the binary code from 1980 contains the fine structured constant. He only found this out last May, May of uh, uh, 2019. 
uh, just before the, we had to include in the book uh, just before the book came out. And um, uh, the fine structure constant is apparently something that's fixed with any everything within the universe. Uh, it's uh, it's how we operate digitally. I mean, from uh, you know, you look at a decimal point and you go over one tenth, then you go over one one hundred, one one thousand, one ten thousand, one one. Okay, we normally operate six digits over. That's humans. That's how we operate with whether it's with coordinates or whether it's with, uh, you know, other parts of science, it's always like that, according to the scientists. And uh, uh, Gary found in there that, uh, well, let's, let's go back a little bit. Gary says that the, uh, uh, the fine structure constant, uh, Carl Sagan once described it in 77. He says, if we ever get a message from a higher intelligence, it's going to be... A, a, probably seven digits over instead of six. And that means these are pretty smart people, right? Well, the binary code that Gary discovered, uh, the uh, fine structure constant, goes over 13 digits. So I don't know what the intelligence level of this uh, uh, is that they created this uh, code, uh, but it's pretty advanced. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And that's one of his discoveries that, uh, he has uh, found in the uh, uh, the code within the code, uh, so it has to, work, uh, and that's going to be in book two. That is that is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's more than amazing. It's, I tell you, I used to get wow factors like daily from him. Right. I mean, I go wow, 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 you know, and it got to the point where it's like, oh. This must be by design, <laughs> right? Because there's nothing. It's like the fiftieth time. How many times can you say "Wow," you know? Uh, and that's anyway. That information is going in book two. So, is the, the Rendlesham Enigma definitive about the Rendlesham Forest incident? Absolutely. Everything I know about it is in that book. Okay. Uh, but book two is going to be about the code within the code. So I have so many other questions to ask you yes. about what's going on in the realm of, I don't know what else to call it besides UFOlogy. There are so many things that have been going on in the past year or two. I'm sure that people have asked you about the Pentagon's disclosure. Whereas the Pentagon is coming out and they've so much as admitted as like, Back in May, there was this big, huge article from the New York Times that kind of broke the story. The Pentagon admits that there are things in the sky and things that touch down on the ground that defy explanation. We don't know where they came from. We don't know the science behind them, but they admitted that they're, that they're there. Is that a, a vindication to you? Is that... Or, or are, are but, you beyond that? Uh, now? No, the Pentagon's. The, you're talking about ATIP. Yeah, that's one of the things. That's one of the things. The effect that uh, the, they, they they always they always have. That's that's an intelligence gathering program. It's not about UFOs. It's about a Sino-Russian, you know, craft in that. That's they're trying. It's a def that's a defense thing. Okay. It has nothing to do with uh, ufology. Uh, the uh, things. Like those Navy films and that—that's uh, stuff that's uh, 
inherent with the, probably the uh, film itself, the uh, radar tracking of the, the cameras on the on the craft net. But uh, 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 a scientist I do I know. Uh, I don't know if you heard of him, but you ever hear of uh, Dr. Uh, Jack Safarley? Uh, the name is familiar. Yes. He has done you know, extensive uh, research into this, and he, uh, uh, as I believe, uh, that these craft are not extraterrestrial. These craft are definitely, in his words, uh, terrestrial craft. And uh, uh, he is... I believe and have believed since uh, uh, the contact night is that the, they're us from the future. They're interdimensional travelers from, from, from our future. So uh, uh, that's why uh, he has uh, some compelling evidence on it uh, and, you know, evidential uh, as far as uh, theories and uh, scientific theories on it and what they are. And how they and how they move around in that. Uh, so you you go ahead and uh, uh, use that as a premise, as a theory, that uh, they're terrestrial from you know inter, you know interdimensional from our future. Uh, then uh, you can eliminate a lot of the bunk from it. For right. example, crashed aircraft. Why would a crashed craft? You know, they were crashed. Why would they? They don't have. They won't have a crash craft. They just come, you know, an hour before the crash, and it doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> it just doesn't it's, happen. It's hard so. to wrap your brain around. It is. It is. And uh, but Jack uh, has uh, has talked about it extensively, uh, and uh, he's got. You go to YouTube. You can bring up. Uh, I'm sure if you type up Jack Safari and and time travel and that, uh, I'm sure you'll get his scientific explanation about it uh, uh, i hate using the word time travel because right. it's that's a hollywood term sure <laughs> you know it's actually interdimensional travel so uh uh you know and uh, there's some good theories on it i mean gary's got theories uh, about it too uh they explain a lot like for example uh, uh the uh, transition to to actually take a corporeal life, you know, and, and interdimensionally travel is probably a harsh uh, uh, experience. And uh, uh, they created, a, you know, a, a, a sort of like a cyborg type uh, entities to travel, you know. So um, I think that would be explain some of these things about grays and things like that. Uh, uh, anyway, he has some good theories, son. Uh, I'm, 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 I tend to believe it. And one of the reasons I do believe that, that they're definitely terrestrial um, is because one of the impressions, one of the communications that I had, you know, uh, back in 1980 around that craft, uh, and uh, it was... Uh, Discovered. By the way, the hypnosis I did, I went in and got a sleep disorder after I got retired from the service in 94. And that's why I went in through referral service, actual psychiatrist. I mean, these are actual doctors. <laughs> they yeah. have nothing to do with ufology. They're there to fix a sleep disorder. And during that, 
one of the things that is discussed in the, in the hypnosis uh, is even though that uh, these people are eight, nine thousand years in our future, and uh, uh, I say in this hypnosis, it says they're still waiting for first contact. They haven't had it yet, even that far ahead in the so, future. So, so our future selves have not met extraterrestrials. Correct. That was the yeah. So that's why I don't believe it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, uh, I got an open mind. You want to go show me otherwise? Go ahead and show me some evidence, and I'll I'll look at it. You know, but. I mean, either either what I mean, whatever it is, wherever they come from, it's still pretty extraordinary, and I'm sure that uh, there's an aspect to this that we're just we're just grasping at straws, we're grasping at at at, at thoughts and ideas and explanations that try and make the best sense, and I'm sure that um, it's just so it's so far beyond, like what you were saying. We think about. We think about science and life and everything at seven decimal points. These people are operating at at at, tw at eleven or twelve, far beyond what we can comprehend. It's sort of like we're. It's almost like we're we're, we're primitives trying to figure out how a cell phone would work or something like that. It's just it's so far beyond us. Or maybe how. How, depending how far back you go with this, uh, yeah, maybe a lot, maybe a lighter. How does that work? Uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But this is, a, I mean, but this was it, a, a life-changing event for you. Uh, yes, it was that. There's and, no doubt. And um, one of the the last questions that I wanted to ask you, because it seems it, it could take us down a, a much further road. Or take us down a, a different um, a rabbit hole. You're you're looking at at forty years of this. You're you're about ready to celebrate the fortieth anniversary in December. And yes. I, now, how does how does it feel to look at something that is? You're I mean you're in the center of this this event, and people are still talking about it forty years later. Uh, what is what does that mean to you? I think there's a lot more to come. I think that's uh, what it is. I think the uh, I, I think this is all by design. I really do. Um, I think that the code was. Uh, uh, if you want to talk about Rendlesham Force incident, it's not about me or any other individual. It's about the code, right? And uh, maybe that's the only reason why they. Uh, maybe there was contact. That was part, that I would. That's what our theory says. That that's that's the only. Whether our working theory is that that is the, the only possibility is that that they wanted to make sure the code got uh, given out. All right. What is uh, even today? Uh, even the Reynolds Enigma. I mean, when we're writing the book, uh, I do a chapter called the Rockford. Colloquium, and in there is the contact with the former CIA agent, if there is such a thing, uh, who had recontacted me. They set up a two-day meeting with us, uh, and I had my attorney there and everything else. Uh, 
they're trying to uh, reverse engineer stuff, and uh, there's a high interest in it with the government. And it goes back to your original question about uh, the Pentagon and that. Uh, I'll tell you right now, the Pentagon, if they gave the Navy Department something to handle UFOs, it's the wrong area. I mean, that sounds like a like a misinformation employee right there. I mean, it would be under the Air Force, I would think, or Space Command, uh, rather than the Navy. So uh, I, I wouldn't trust a lot of the information that's coming out. I think they're, I think, can you imagine if you understood the, the, the technology that you could do interdimensional travel, what kind of power that oh, yeah. would be? Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if, I mean, not just the U.S. government or, or the, 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 I almost called them the, that's how old I am. I still call them the Soviets, the Russians or the Chinese, or even worse, me. I mean, could you imagine what I would do if I had the ability to travel through dimensions and time and, and, and the kind of crazy things that I would do? Um, it, that's just, that's a scary thing. And it was just like, who do you trust with that kind of information or technology? Well, the CIA is still interested in it. I mean, that, that, as of about uh, four years ago, three years ago. So, you know, other, why meet, why meet up with, they told us why they met up with, uh, Burles and they met up with me. Uh, you know, we cover that in the, in the Reynolds Enigma also, uh, uh, the other thing is, is uh, uh, don't think for one second the Air Force left left me high and dry. They didn't. They uh, gave me a lifeline while I was in the service, because I continued my career. Right, right. Bentwaters for another twelve or thirteen years, and I had, I had a, uh, I, I had a guardian angel. I had a, uh, a person I could talk to. So that's in the Reynolds Enigma right. book also. Because you went off to have a full career. You, I did. You and it was did. a very nice career, too. A very successful career. Yeah. Why? Another question that I wanted to ask you, um, and it may, sound, it may sound ridiculous, but it was, um, I mean, I was going to ask you, why come forward and tell us all of this but then of course listening to you and and listening to like reading what you have to say online you're motivated by a greater something to tell your story you'll tell your story to everybody because you think it's that important you it seems like it's almost as if it's your life mission to, to uh, share yeah, with everybody it's uh it's no oh, i know it's really bizarre uh it's just like uh, I, what I caught myself doing with the Reynolds Enigma book when people, you know, talk to me about it and that, and, you know, they talk about, you know, well, why did you write the book? I says, I tell them the same thing every, every time to inform, to inform you. And that's what the book's about is to inform what happened. It informed the person on what really happened. I tell you what. Uh, I start my I start conferences. I don't do very many conferences. I don't do any now with the COVID. But uh, when I start my uh, my uh, briefing, and I call it a briefing because I don't give a lecture. I give a briefing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just tell them. I says, you know, how many people in here 
I, I was down in the, the, one of the last ones I did was the uh, one in Los Angeles, down in uh, Irvine, California, the Mufon Symposium. Yep. And there was, I don't know how many people, 800 people, 1,000. And I said, how many people in here know about the Reynolds from Forest? And I said, obviously, they should all, right? Because they're here, they're there, they, you know, listen to me. Right. And they all raised their hand. I said, okay, everything you know about Rendlesham is wrong. That's what I tell them. Is wrong. There's so much disinformation that's been put out. It's including even documentaries I've done. You know, they, they have their own motivation, those production companies. They cut, they slice, they do whatever they want to sensationalize. That's the other thing that gets me. They try to sensationalize Rendlesham. And Rendlesham is sensational by itself. You don't have to try to sensationalize it. I mean, not not from my vantage point, anyway. What can we What can we do better in promoting or sharing stories like this? As as somebody who is into new alternative media, what can I do better to tell stories like yours? And not be like those producers who have agendas. Um, I, I don't. I tell you what, ninety-nine percent of all uh, the uh, stories with ufology, UFOs, is explainable. You know, mm-hmm. man, man-made, uh, drone. The best one is never you never look at anything that's been done through night vision. Okay, because that is. That is a red flag right there, okay? That's not legit, okay? You're not seeing what you really think you're seeing. Um, 1%, though. The 1% is still unknown. And I have run into other people with that 1%. And uh, what's one of the things I get out of uh, maybe doing a conference or something like that? I do run into those that 1%. Now, that don't sound like much. But when, you know, you have, you know, uh, reports of worldwide, you know, in the hundreds of thousands or something like that, 1% is a lot of cases that you can't explain. Uh, I think that, uh, I think there's a good chance That uh, the, the thing. Well, let me let me say the one of the things that really bothers me about ufology uh, is these conferences. I find that the lecture speakers, except for just a handful I've met, the rest of them are there to uh, uh, you know to. Uh, prey on uh, the people that are looking for answers and they're, that's, that's what they do they get, they have a market here <laughs> throughout their you know trying to uh, uh, make money off uh, people who are just trying to find answers and uh, that bothers me a lot and that's why I don't do a lot of conferences uh, like I said there is a handful of people that uh, I've talked to that you know are credible by the way they're witnesses okay there are people that actually witness stuff, and uh, uh, there's stuff to it. I, Travis Walton, for example, 
you know, he's uh, he's legit, you know. Uh, I got to meet him last year, and, uh, you know, you, when, once you look in a person's eyes and they're telling you, you know, you know whether they're telling the truth or not, you know. And he is. Uh, but you got the other people that prey on, uh, you know, ufology. I mean, uh, and I don't want to go into names for them. I think you know who they are. I think I do. But they got, yeah, they got KGRA. They are on there a lot. Uh, um, they got uh, uh, people that uh, hit every lecture circuit venue they can. Um, it's crazy. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I don't do a lot of conferences. I, you know, the, you know, they're they're taking advantage of people. I think that that's one of the reasons why I I do what it is that I do is that I just like turn on the microphone and just allow people just to talk and just leave it to the audience. You decide. Now there's a you know there's a case that I know of that's up in your area, neck of the woods, uh, um, that. Uh, it's got me wondering, you know, I, I questioned, I questioned, uh, I, I take it as, one, you know, one of the one percents, you know, something I can't explain. I mean, there's cases like that we have across, you know, the states and that, that, that catch my uh, eyes uh, in interest. Uh, I'll tell you right now, you go on the internet, though, and you see a video, uh, I don't even have to look, it's fake, you know, okay. it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. <laughs> All right. Now, yeah. like, um, I'm also reading a, uh, another book on uh, Betty and Barney Hill and the, the uh, um, I think it's the um, Exeter, Exeter mm-hmm. case. Right. That, that's up in your neck of the woods, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, they have, yeah. An, they have an annual conference that we've been trying to, uh, to, to break into. Wouldn't it be great to be able to talk to them? I mean, really, in in asking questions. Oh, it would I be. Mean, oh, it would be. It's like one of the one of I think one of the greatest regrets that I have is not starting the sooner, and not being able to reach out to people. I mean, there are so many strange characters who have so many odd um, stories to tell. Um, my former co-host uh, Walt Schnabel and I talked to this guy who I mean insists that he was in. Um, downtown Manhattan one night and he was uh, abducted and then he was he was dropped off here in southern New Hampshire out in the middle of nowhere and um, just trying to get him to tell his story and just sit down just just for an hour and just tell the mm-hmm. story um, I think that I think that there's another trauma going on there yeah, you know, I, I think it is difficult. And I, I tell you, I, I had a really nice experience uh, back in 2007. And uh, I spoke at the National Press Club. Uh, James Fox was doing a uh, I Know What I Saw uh, uh, documentary. And so that was part of it. But the, the part I like is we're out there a week, week and a half in D.C. And, uh, you know, I got to have breakfast and lunch and dinners with these uh, uh, 14 other people that are from around the world and uh, you know knowing that the, their cases are legitimate they're part of that one percent and it's like General uh, Debauer uh, with the Belgium lights uh, oh uh, General Jafari uh, Iranian Air Force uh, with the Oh, that's a that's an incredible story by itself. 
with General Jafari and uh, actually uh, locking in, going to shoot, actually shoot a missile at yeah. you. Uh, uh, that there was a. These guys here are legit, a hundred percent. And uh, but you can't explain what happened, you know. I mean, even with nose cam footage from uh, Jafari, I mean, it's like there's no doubt that ain't that ain't ours, you know. Uh, but you don't see them on the internet, those films. Why? That's a good question because I think it is has a lot to do with the fact that it's like there are people who just don't want their lives to be uprooted and and ruined. Or they're, they're like you had said earlier in the show, like people are worried about their careers and they don't want to be labeled as crackpots and kooks. Right, and you know, it's just like we have a uh, we have an evolving Reynolds from Forest research team uh, for the last ten years, and uh, uh, we do have uh, notable professors on it. You know, that are, are actively teaching at universities, and this, you know, I I said I like to use their names, and they, you know, they're adamant. They're like, uh, no, I want to get grants in the future. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I don't want my name out there. And I go, oh, really? And I understand it. You know, it 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 it, it hurts their career. You know, uh, but uh, behind the scenes, they work well. You know, it's just that they just don't want to go out publicly. It's just like with with Rendlesham, though. You know, uh, I wasn't alone that night. You know, we had another fifty uh, security policemen working that night, and uh, and when I was writing. Uh, you know, uh, both books, uh, mainly the uh, Rendlesham Enigma book, uh, I uh, would get, uh, you know, like an email from one of the guys we work with and says, hey, make sure, make sure you say this part or talk about this part. <laughs> so they're all interested, but they just don't want to go public. So why don't you go public? Uh-uh, they don't want to do that. And, you know, not, I don't blame them one bit because uh, there's a lot of ridicule and there's a lot of grief with it. Um, one of the things is uh, I find it therapeutic to write books. It makes me feel better after I've written these last two books. Um, I I have suffered from you know uh, PTSD from this incident, so you know I've been dealing with that for the last uh, you know thirty some years, and uh, you know where you have to take medication so you can't dream and or won't dream and uh, you know all kinds of stuff. You get used to it uh, after a while. But there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma I think involved with it. Uh, uh, one thing uh, uh, really, when per, well, when a person I meet tells me, I wish I seen a, I wish I I wish I had contact with a UFO, and I, I'm thinking to myself, I never say this out loud to him. I'm thinking, you better be careful what you wish for, you know. <laughs> I don't think they understand. You know, uh, there's more to it than just, uh, uh, it's not, it's not always the fun and games that I guess everybody would anticipate that would be. It's not, uh, it's not like what you see in a Steven Spielberg movie. That's for sure. Um, right. I, one of the things that I wanted to do, and I wanted to, I wanted to wrap this up. Um, how can people find you and how, how can we get in touch with you and how can we find your book? And um, what's, what social media platform do you want us to follow you on? 
Oh, I like Facebook. Uh, yep. You know, uh, I like Facebook. I do have a you know, my personal page, which is Jim Peniston. But the uh, the one I rather have you look at is the Rendlesham Forest incident, uh, December 1980. Uh, it's uh, the official page that we have. Uh, there's uh, uh, two other admins on it, but that one there we post uh, you know factual stuff. Yeah. The other one is uh, we have um, uh, Darren Dubois is the webmaster for the uh, uh, the web page, which is the Rendlesham Forest incident, and uh, that is probably one of the best uh, uh, information pages or not pages but uh, web pages that uh, you probably ever look at. Um, uh, it's you know it presents everything you know even the uh, uh, you know, stuff that's trying to debunk it and things like that too. Uh, if you need to, if you want to read the uh, Reynolds Enigma uh, and get informed on what really happened at Reynolds uh, on that night uh, and the aftermath, uh, just type in Reynolds Enigma on uh, Amazon.com and. It'll take you right there. There's a the paperback, like I said, is 702 pages long. Uh, uh, but you can get Kindle too. If you have Kindle Unlimited, uh, it's free. Um, so you know that's where you're, we'd like you to purchase uh, a book and, and become informed. And maybe uh, even for the researchers uh, uh, to. Uh, Maybe get a copy, use the Reynolds Magnega book as a reference, and write your own book and carry on more research. We'd like to see that. Uh, we're always open to that. Uh, if you want to email me, that's a real hard thing to do. Yeah. Uh, just <laughs> you can go ahead and just type in uh, Reynolds from Forest Incident at yahoo.com. And, uh, hey, I will answer. It's just I don't always immediately answer, but uh, uh, I get a lot of emails. So uh, it, it takes me a while to sit down and go through emails. So, But I will go through them. I want to thank you for being on my, on my podcast. Um, I have to go get lunch for the kiddos. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I I just want to invite you to come back on the podcast if if you want to talk if you want to promote the the next book or if you if you have something else that you want to share you're always welcome here and um and I want to thank you for your bravery and I want to thank you for everything that you've done in in talking about what you've done um and and uh thank you for everything Okay, Eric. This is uh, this is a nice uh, interview. Uh, actually, it felt more like uh, uh, the two of us having a cup of coffee in the living room. Uh, it's a pretty easy one, and uh, yeah, uh, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about Rendlesham. I appreciate it, and uh, to let people know how to get a hold of the book. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, and I will have a link to the book um, on my on my website and the show page and it's an it is an incredible read it it is um and there is just so much there to try and digest. yeah and if you're not a researcher 
don't read the end notes. <laughs> read read the chapters, you know. Yep. Right through and read it. Yep. And if you're, you're a researcher or if you're if you want to question anything, <coughs> those end notes, uh, Gary spent a lot of time researching. Yep. So you know. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity, Eric. It's my it's Appreciate my pleasure it. and thank you for for sticking through it with all the technical difficulties. This has been another Metaphysical Connection edition of the Federal Chronicles Radio Show. One-on-one -on -one interviews with authors and investigators who explore the realms of the metaphysical, unexplained phenomenon, and the paranormal. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by simply searching for the Fedora Chronicles on any of those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook after you found us so you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at gmail.com, are great ways to drop us a line with comments and suggestions for future show topics. We might even read your comment on the air. Those platforms are also great ways to reach us if you'd like to come onto the podcast and promote your own book, documentary, or other work you've done in the realms of unexplained phenomenon and the paranormal. If you want just the Metaphysical Connection portion of the Fedora Chronicles, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash groups slash the Metaphysical Connection. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing, and for $5 a month, you get all of that plus a t-shirt or coffee mug. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme song for the Metaphysical Connection editions of the Fedora Chronicles radio show is Moon Expedition by Olive Music from Premium Beat, which provided the license for the song. The Fedora Chronicles radio show is edited and produced by Eric Render King Fisk. That's me. With a special thank you to the Metaphysical Connections co-founder, Walt Schnabel. Copyright, The Fedora Chronicles, 2020. All rights reserved.